Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. My name is Dr. Sanjay Janeja, a hematologist, medical oncologist, aka blood and cancer doctor, known as the OncDoc on social media, and here we're going to bring you all the stuff that relate to cancer. Amazing therapies and everything we have to look forward to and are happening today that many of us don't know, but also the stuff that's kind of around cancer, right? So like cancer risks and genetics and and what are some of the modifications we can do with lifestyle to reduce um, our chances of cancer? And are they real? Is there evidence for it? We go into that today with Dr. Greg Bailey, who was an ER physician and a great one, but now has really dedicated his time and energy into anti-aging. And he, and he said it best with this phrase, which is, you know that, you know, being overweight increases cancer, what, three, five times in this, in this area. And if you smoke, it's, you know, X number of times. He's like, nothing increases your chance of cancer and having you know systemic comorbidities to hundreds and thousands of times higher risk than aging. Yeah, it's been an extraordinary journey, Sanjay, and thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Um, about nine years ago, um, I met a gentleman named Luigi Fontana, and Luigi is probably one of the foremost experts in the world on caloric restriction. And, uh, you know, he said 1,200 calories for women, 1,800 calories for men, you live longer. It's been modified as, uh, with time since I spoke to him nine years ago. Now we also find that in the mice in particular, they have to be in a cold climate when they're doing caloric restriction. If they're in a warm climate, it doesn't work, which I think surprised most of the scientists. Next, I met a guy named Walter Longo out of USC, and he said you can get exactly the same response once every three months if you do five days, 800 calories and no carbs and no meat products during that period of time. And you go into ketosis on day three, and he said that literally resets how your cells process energy. Right. And then the That's third true. one that started this journey was a gentleman named um, Walter Bortz, who's head of gerontology at Stanford. And he said that if you are fit, you mentally and physically decline at half a percent a year, both mentally and physically. And he said, but if you're unfit, it's 2% a year. And that got me thinking and thought, there's nothing magical about diet or exercise. So they're all working on a cellular pathway, Sandra, as you clearly know uh, very, very well. It must be doing something on a cellular level. And then I found out that scientists had sort of discovered the four main pathways that cause your cells to age. And there's one thing you and I know about scientists. If they know the pathways, they'll figure out how to tinker with it. So I started bombarding my two partners with information on what the scientists were discovering and it came to fruition in 2017 when we started a company called Juvenescence which was to find pharmaceuticals to modify aging at slow halt or ideally reverse aging and lo and behold we are on that path and we are now beginning to understand it as a group scientists not just my company that's incredible it's it's so interesting because you know aging is a principle for our bodies as a whole right so like we just get older and we have different parts and we have our you know neurologic stuff which is in our brain and and then you also have your physical health like you were saying but in a sense you know if you want to call it an allegory of sorts the same thing happens to a cancer cell. Cancer cells basically stop aging. And that's the issue is that they all of a sudden are unregulated and are just starting to grow, 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 grow. 
And a term that anyone you know that has had cancer or knows somebody will always hear is differentiation. So what does that mean? And basically differentiation is if it's poorly differentiated, it's so early in its growth process that it's extremely difficult to even kind of delineate or tell what it looks like. It's like identifying somebody, you know, when they were six months old and you have somebody in a classroom and say, well, who's this, you know, who's, which one, which one of you is this kid, you know, this six month old? And it's hard to tell because it's poorly differentiated. And generally those are a lot harder to treat because they're just, you know, they have way more wizardry, if you will, on, on how to escape, uh, you know, the immune system and, and they're just more stubborn versus something that's well differentiated and that's easily recognizable. And a lot of times it's less aggressive, but it's harder to cure because if it's well differentiated, like a neuroendocrine tumor, then it may be um, uh, difficult to attack because it doesn't turn over as much. And all of our cells turn over again. So it's this weird kind of concept of cancer cells and turnover and then us as you know as humans and what we turn over and, and what can we do to slow that turnover process down now one of the things that i think a lot of people uh have at least heard about are what's called telomeres right so telomeres uh well let, let's start there what, how would you what would you describe as a telomere and its relevance to like a cell <clears throat> it's, a, it's an interesting thing there's a guy named hayflick and he said your cells have a defined number of times that they can reproduce and then they falter and it's called the hayflick number and it's much better predicated on telomeres than the telomerase, which breaks down the telomeres. And so how can we reverse aging by doing it? And to your point, probably one of the reasons you've invited me, Sanjay, is the, onto your podcast is the relationship between cancer and aging is, is in, integral. As you've just mentioned, cancer cells are immortal. How do I make your heart, normal heart cells immortal? How do I make your normal brain cell neurons immortal? And then there's telomerase and then there's a pathway called p53 which i don't know what you've talked about in previous podcasts and so they're very correlated and telomeres factor into this equation because they've seen telomere length decrease with aging now interestingly they're beginning to be skeptical of that i think it's probably one of the factors that uh, we can check to define aging but it's certainly not in isolation and it plays oh, an enormous role in cancer I didn't know that there was some some speculation, but yeah, the way I learned about it, you know, in high school in an anti-aging class actually was was the telomeres just basically just start to fade, you know, like is somebody's hair getting thinner, you know, as they get older, and it's definitely you know something we notice in cancer cells. It's like okay, there's some manipulation here uh, that may just kind of you know create this sustainability or longevity basically, and then. I also heard that people have, you know, based on their genetics or what we call SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, kind of these variations that may account for, you know, I have patients right out in the country that are 95 and I'm like, what's the secret? They're like, I just drink red wine every you know, <laughs> evening. And so it's just like, it's like, there's, there's definitely a science to it. And then there's this other side where you're just like, this is, you know, it's just crazy. And then I, you know, I joke with people as far as, you know, Indians, we say we don't have the best genetics and somebody says, no, why? And I'm like, how many Indians do you know over 85? And then they just like kind of pause and they're like, okay, not that many. So there's all kinds of stuff and idiosyncrasies based on, you know, your genetic makeup. So it's, it's an interesting, and I studied philosophy in undergrad, so I love to make these connections with, with cancer and just kind of maybe this, this overall kind of, you know, more philosophical concept. And like you said, cancer cells are immortal. How do we make them mortal? Where's their Achilles heel so we can regulate them? Because cancer is just defined as unregulated growth. One of the most common questions I get on all my videos on TikTok and Instagram is, Doc, 
should I like stop you know eating sugar, especially unfortunately in the stage four cancer? Uh, will it will it slow down my my basically cancer or help it go away? And and I've seen spouses you know unfortunately with their spouse who has cancer in stage four. I mean they're not able to enjoy anything. Like they just kind of cut them out you know of all the sugar and everything. And I that breaks my heart because I know how badly that spouse wants that loved one to live, right? So like you're like if there's any evidence then let's do everything we can. I want you around as long as possible. But then the person with cancer sometimes can't enjoy the things they want. So it's very tricky and we're learning a lot. But one place to start with, and if you can speak on this, is is you know the difference between like glucose and fructose. Because I think that has a lot to do with what we're seeing about one, how it's related to cancer, and two, these pancreatic cancers and small intestinal cancers everyone's talking about. What is the difference between the two? And if you had to pick one, which one's worse? No, fructose. I think that the Cleveland Clinic has gone off. I've forgotten which of the doctors, I think two or three of them, about how horrible fructose is for us. It, uh, right after I spoke to Walter Bortz and uh, my linear path towards the journey for anti-aging, I spoke to a gentleman named Peter Atia. And the day I bumped into him, oh, the New York Times had just written an article about diet and sugar and aging. And he, you know, and we talked about it. A, we said that we thought, we both agreed that we think one of the forms of Alzheimer's is type three diabetes. As you well know, around 45 or 50, all of a sudden my body, uh, go, my organs go insulin resistant. And when your brain goes insulin resistant and the sugar goes crazy high, not responding to the insulin level and sickly because I had carbohydrates or fruit, it goes high. It starts the cascade towards Alzheimer's. Also, we talked about the fact that did sugar cause cancer? And he goes, no, we know, you know, which you probably have spoken on previously, and that is cancer is a very primitive cell. The cell, and you can correct me on this if I'm off kilter, um, but uh, basically <clears throat> the, your cells can use protein, fat, or carbs. Cancer predominantly prefers carbs. Now, to say that the carbs cause the cancer that's not been shown. We know that it likes, it prefers the sugar. So to prevent cancer, you know, it's probably not a role. Once you have cancer, it probably does play a role. I'm on metformin to biohack. You know, it was a very interesting, very large study, I think 600,000 patients, which showed that people on metformin actually live longer than healthy people. And these were type two diabetics. So that's intriguing. And then Yale University, one of the top guys in the world, um, said, you know, he did a study and he found that 25% of healthy, fit students at Yale University were insulin resistant in their 20s. A staggering number. So where metformin, where sugar plays into this role, because if they're insulin resistance, they're going to spike crazy high. The last piece, and not to avoid the question of glucose versus fructose, I think fructose is a very bad actor. Glucose, I think we can probably process better, but 25% of healthy people you know, insulin resistance. So that's a very intriguing fact. So now we know that the, everybody has cancer cells, which you've probably spoken about, in their body circulating. And the immune system generally does a good job. And then there's the whole checkpoint inhibitor, so you know, how powerful they are, you know, and what we've seen with them. So don't supply them with, you know, the sugar, as it, particularly if you're insulin resistant, you can't knock it down. Why HbA1c that chronic monitoring of your blood sugar level probably plays an enormous role in your predisposition to, an, uh, to cancer. So yeah, it's a very complicated one-two step between glucose and cancer. 
and fructose, as I said, it's just really poorly processed. And, and, and I think people don't know two pieces of whole wheat bread um, are similar to eating a Snickers bar. I mean, they're that level of sugar. And the other thing that most people don't know, there's a study done in Israel, and that was um, this group. They took very healthy artisan bread, and they took store-bought whole wheat bread, and they gave it to people. And they were shocked to find out that in a very high number percentage of people, their blood sugar went crazy on the healthy bread and didn't react on the whole wheat. And most people, the whole wheat did cause problems. So then they started testing things and they found out that your level to respond to blood sugar is and carbs and what you eat is idiosyncratic. So to your point about Indi Indians versus people who aren't from an Indian descent, there's a different diet, there's a different thing. And even within that subgroup, there's people who do it. For example, I wore a glucose 24 seven glucose monitor and I test myself, you know, what happens with French toast? What happens with pizza, pasta, fruit? And it was really interesting what caused my blood sugar to go crazy and what didn't. So I think that as glucose monitors become more and more available, you, it's a powerful tool for you to check out. And it, because of the not causing cancer, but if your immune system's taken a hit for any reason, um, then it becomes very, very important how you're, how you're utilizing and whether you have insulin or don't have insulin uh, and what you're eating. When you have an either physical or mental um, stressor, you know, and, and I saw it when I was an emergency room doctor, somebody come in and they had a death in the family or they had an accident. Within two years, they had cancer. And, you know, I think so many people observed that. And it's because of this imbalance of the immune system dropping due to the stressor and the cancer taking off and then creating a checkpoint so it can't be noticed. And then that sugar all of a sudden becomes a weapon. What interesting. So the sugar from like the imbalance in the in, in just the immune system from the trauma. So, what, so people listening like cortisol, right? Stress, all your stressors are actually like, that's why they say don't stress too much, you get immune compromised or if you haven't you know, slept and you're studying for your, you know, your college exams, then a lot of times people will get sick when they're you know, stumbling into their boards. Why? Because you haven't slept, all your stress hormones are up, and that's obviously lack of sleep causes the stress hormones to go up, and your immunity literally goes down. That's why everyone goes into the holidays sick is because they're just, they've, they've induced themselves into this, uh, you know, state of stress and, and, and poor immune function. But so, and how does that relate exactly to the sugar uh, part of it, you said? So let's talk about the cascade. And as I said, I'm an ER doc, did it for 10 years. And you'd see somebody have either, you know, a, a bad accident or, you know, death in the family in two years, they had cancer. So everybody we know and everybody who's listening to this podcast, you have cancer cells in your blood, but your immune system is able to take control of it. And then you have the stressor, your immune system drops, the cancer takes off and it creates a checkpoint, which means when your immune system comes back, it can no longer recognize the cancer as a foreign agent. And that's why checkpoint inhibitors, the new drug are so powerful. I think they've gone from zero to 80 billion in sales because they allow your immune system to recognize your cancer as a foreign body and destroy it. 25% cures in certain forms of lung cancer and melanoma. So this is a super powerful tool. Now let's say that you had that stress so the cancer is starting to grow, the checkpoint is now beginning to grow and you're feeding it with sugar you know, because you're having on a high sugar diet, high carb diet. So what can I do to knock it down? Which is interesting where metformin doesn't use insulin, but it takes down your sugar level. And it's, it doesn't have to be a stressor. So we host, my company hosts in Oxford University, a geroscience day 
geroscience and scientists who work specifically on aging. One of them came in and she was a respirologist. And she said, last two years have been a particularly tough year for her, as you can imagine, taking care of COVID in the United Kingdom, where we've had a staggering high number. And she said, we were curious, there were two populations dying, the elderly, which everybody's aware of, and primary um, first responders. And so we tested the first responders, you know, how, and why they were being hit so hard by COVID. And we found that if you're a 30 year old and you're on shift work and you're getting very little sleep, you have the immune panel of a 70 year old. It's that level of discrepancy. So stressors, you know, even something like lack of sleep in a 30 year old, you are predisposing yourself to um, a cancer cell taking off. So and then you add in sugar, which is their primary energy source for a cancer. Now you have this virtuous and unfortunate cycle. Yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, when I did internal medicine before uh, uh, an oncologist, I would sleep apnea was very important to me. I was like, it's not just about the machine and stuff. I'm like, you got you get this whole cascade, this downstream, you know, effect of stuff. It's not emotional stress, it's physiologic stress that's going to cause like your, you know, dysregulation and, and sugar control. That's why like people have like central obesity more. I mean, there's just so many things and then the immune system and then uh, an impaired immune system for elevated risk of cancer that happened with sleep apnea. So if anyone's listening to this and you know, you're not wearing your machine, like, please, there's just a lot of literature and it can literally change the course of your life and the trajectory. But you touched on it earlier and I love that, um, what you alluded to and how I explain it is, you know, you don't check a glucometer on your body and see a glucose of zero, right? Like, so you always have, this is very key for anyone listening to understand. You always have glucose in your blood. I mean, that's the whole purpose of glucagon and insulin, making sure that all of our cells that, you know, that tick and function have the energy they need. They need the oil, and they need gas, or if there was a, you know, an older train, traditional train, you throw the coal to continue to get the energy that you need to, you need to go. Well, cancer is, or was a regular cell, but it's like that. It's it's hot, right? It's like all, it's like driving a car in third gear, and you're and you're going too too fast. That engine is getting hot, and you're like, you really should kick it up into gear, and you can't. Well, what is what are the, what are the needs of this cancer cell? It just needs more energy, more coal, more gas, more more uh, oil, whatever whatever your metaphor is. It just needs to feed more. So of course, yes. If somebody asked me, well, tell me point blank, Doctor Janaja on on Instagram, TikTok, Doctor. If I took all the sugar out of your body and gave no like, you know, glucose, will the cancer still live? Like the answer is no, but neither will any of the other cells in your body. Right? <laughs> there is because one flaw with this. <laughs> right. I'm like, you, you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, I love, I love that we live in an era where people do like, like to learn and like have, you know, bits of knowledge. But then when you don't have the surrounding knowledge, it's like, sometimes you can just have this, oh, moment, right? Yes. Your cancer cell will die with no oxygen. We can just put you in, into a chamber and, and wipe out that. I mean, it will die. So oxygen, you know, take away oxygen, cancer cells will die, but so will your cells. So that's where, you know, from what I've read, because I've looked into it, I want to make sure I, I love that about social media is because I learn things or at least get prompted to look deeply into things that are less, you know, medical board oriented, but have some degree of merit. And then, and then you find out, oh, this is why, where it's kind of taken to mean something else. But fructose, you know, it, it, it's shown to have like worse implications with, with, uh, cancer cells. And basically just imagine it as, as basically a cheat code for the cancer cells to be able to process and get that acceleration even faster than regular glucose. So fructose, 
I think, and there's more to come, I'm going to look it up and put some stuff in the podcast, but I think that's something that does seem to just cancer cells do better with, and of course nothing in our body does. So fructose is, is a big problem for a lot of reasons. Before we continue, this is, you're just, you're just this wealth of knowledge, and I just want to like ask you a gazillion questions, but I can't because you're a very busy man. But the metformin dose, how much, uh, like, and this is off record, obviously it's a biohack, but is it the traditional 500 BID or? Um, so, you know, you can talk to David Sinclair, uh, who's probably one of the foremost doctors at Harvard and geroscientist. I think he's at 1.5 grams. I think Nir Bazelli, who, or Bazelli, who's running the TAME study, which is the um, metformin study that they want to do to find out if it's anti-aging. I'm not sure it's anti-aging, but I think it lowers your risk of cancer and heart disease, and that's why people live longer. And uh, I think he takes around that amount. Um, I know, I think when I talked to Peter Diamandis, he was up at two grams. So it's all over the map. I bec try to train every day. And there was a study at the University of Illinois that said, if you are on metformin, um, and I think Peter T has stopped metformin for this reason, because he trains very aggressively. It messes up the mitochondria decoupling. And, uh, and I'm a little bit out of my depth here, but that that actually doesn't allow you to bulk up. Now near the running gentleman who's running the TAME study at Einstein University said, you don't buck a bulk up, but you, you uh, remain strong. You don't lose any fitness that you would normally have. And I must admit, because I work out every day and I'm now in my 60s, I haven't seen the loss of muscle mass I mean, or strength, I should say. Um, so long-winded story, I take 500 milligrams. I only eat it in, in a six-hour window. As you know, um, it onsets about four hours. It lasts about seven hours. So I figure with 500 milligrams, I can sort of modify that period when I'm actually taking sugar. If um, you know, if I'm eating in a different cycle, I will take 500 milligrams of BID. Yeah, I do the same exact thing. Um, and speaking of which, with your windows, you know, I've done intermittent fasting for a long time. I kind of, I wouldn't say personal trainer, but help some of my residents and fellows. Uh, get into shape because it's a stressful situation, you're working 80 hours a week. And we would do intermittent fasting quite often, or at least the modified version, right? Or initially it was studied with multiple days of fasting and then eat. But everyone does, for the most part, the um, six hours of eating and then uh, the remaining, you know, fasting. Does that seem, the big debate is, well, it doesn't really have the same effect as having that prolonged fast and not. And, and other people say, well, even if it doesn't, you're still, you know, limiting the calories you're putting in just overall. What does it show as far as that window of uh, 16 on or 18 you know, hours not eating and six on? So do you go into like a, do you actually burn more fat? The, the way it's, it's said on social media, you just burn more fat with this schedule uh, and do lean, you know, have leaner muscle mass. We have a product you can buy on Amazon. It's called Metabolic Switch and it's an exogenous ketone ester. Ketone salts don't really work, either, uh, nor does MTC. But an exogenous ketone ester will drive you into ketosis. We actually, because we're a drug company, even though it's a supplement, we did clinical studies. You take our, our drink or powder and in 15 to 30 minutes you're in ketosis, you will be there three to five hours. So regardless of whether you had French toast, you know, I mean, you'll have high sugar, but you also have high ketones. What's interesting is your brain prefers, we believe your brain prefers sugar and your heart prefers ketones. So it's bad. So it certainly serves that. But if you didn't have the French toast, then your brain is much better served using ketones as an energy source. In doing that, because we had COVID the last two years, if any, anyone missed that, um, we weren't able to run a clinical trial, our first clinical trial 
uh, with third parties. So my employees became our lab rats and we would prick our finger every 15 minutes, you know, when we were taking the drink. It was interesting to me because, as you said, I'm on this 18 hours off, six hour window. I was at 0.3, you know, after not eating from the night before. Now, maybe, maybe if I ate less, but I wasn't eating, I don't overeat. So I don't think you could get into ketosis. Mild ketosis for your, for your listeners is 0.5. Full ketosis is 1.5. When I take our product, I go to 1.8 to 2.0 within 15 to 30 minutes. And I'm there for three to five hours, you know, and we now know how powerful that is. So we're looking at running a clinical study with Ohio State University, you know, to validate how robust that is for being neuro and cardioprotective. So um, what I would say is you're probably not getting into ketosis. Now, having said that, you do Walter Longo's prolonged diet in your five days or many of the other fasting methods that people use. 36 hours of glucose in your, in your uh, liver, you're in ketosis by day two, late day two, early day three. And you feel it, you literally feel more energy, you feel more mentally acutely aware. So um, I would say that, you know, you're not getting there with the six and 18, you know, window or whatever window you're doing, but you're probably eating less calories because you're just eating less. And you're probably beginning to learn to, your, to feed your body when it's hungry, which is you know counterintuitive to most people at this point in time so sorry for those listeners out there who think they can do it but you really do need if you're going to do it by diet you really need to do it the other way what's been extraordinary is the studies are coming out fast and furious that i don't need to to put force myself with a diet into ketosis i'm just as easily served by taking a ketone ester product just so people understand he's basically telling us that when you do this really strict because i have so many patients that should i just do you know keto diet and I'm like look you know it's 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 hard it's non-sustainable it's it's effective it works you know if you have a you know a photo shoot or whatever coming up then it makes sense but it's just hard to sustain he is telling us that you can achieve that what'd you say 36 hours of not eating carbs right to get into ketosis yeah pretty much I mean most people that's how much carbs they have in their liver the third and that's why I always tell people with intermittent fasting if you have a you know a cheat day you just reset the next day but with ketosis you can't just reset the next day you need 36 hours he's telling you there is a product that that you know based on actual monitored system shows you you go into ketosis 15 to 20 minutes after instead of the 36 hours that is mind-blowing so just so this is obviously my next side I'm sure somebody has this I love the listeners that listen to this are just so high IQ I learned so much from them and and I'd love to kind of get in their brains about what questions they would ask so if I if I throw myself into it and you said it'll last about six hours so do I if if I had you know sugar the night before then I go back I go back out of ketosis when when my supplement wears off correct yeah. or should I do it every six hours and then wait 36 hours and like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so yeah, you're it. still going to need that 36 eventually. It's interesting. So and we, we literally just launched our, an app on an Android and we're launching one on Apple. And basically it's called Juvu, uh, J-U-V-Y-O-U. And with, we launched it in conjunction with Metabolic Switch. So you can, if you, and we will sell uh, at a discount price a, company, a product called Keto Mojo which allows you to prick your finger and see where you are as far as ketosis, see whether it's lasting three hours or six hours. And it's relatively painless. And then we're going to probably use urine dipsticks as well to see you in ketosis, but it doesn't help. But you maybe should take 
you know, half the drink in the morning and half the drink in five hours. I should take the full drink in the morning. So we're trying to figure that out. So I can't answer your question right now. That's why we need to do more clinical studies. But what we do know is during every day, it is much healthier for you to live longer healthy if you are in ketosis part of that day and you are not going to get there with diet. Eric Verdon is the head of the Buck Institute, which is actually he created the ketone ester with John Newman. And we, my company licensed it and is marketing it. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, maybe we should all be on a keto, ketogenic diet. And he goes, yes, if you can live on macadamia nuts and avocados. But he said, one piece of fruit and you're screwed for the next two days. So it is an almost impossible diet to sustain. And here's a drink that you can take in the morning and you're in ketosis, you know, for the next three to six hours. That is absolutely wild. And there's a ton of literature that shows how healthy ketosis is. There's oh, no yeah. question that, you know. Increased left so, ventricular uh, stroke volume, lower blood pressure, um, pre you know, perhaps, you know, mitigating against Alzheimer's. Not That's not so proven, but it's, it's looking like, because now we've now taken, which is what my company does, we've taken that same ketone ester, changed it, and we're going to use it in a form of heart failure called HEPFA heart failure, which is really pretty much an unmet clinical need, although semi-glutide looks like it may help. But the ketones are so powerful in what they do in allowing your heart to function more optimally without straining the heart that it looks like it may have a place in heart failure. We're also looking at it for one of the forms of epilepsy because, again, we know that ketosis has such a spectacular role on stabilizing neurons. And yes. there's, a, there's another company that's looking at it for migraine. Yeah, there's a, definitely a whole bunch of neurologic stuff that goes with it too. But on the same point, what do you say to people, and my wife is one of these people, right? She grew up in the Midwest. She, you know, is just on, you know, the kind of farm country diet or was, but she's really healthy. And, you know, she's also an oncologist, but she swears when she's avoiding carbs, she's like, I'm telling you, I just can't think. Like, I just, I just feel almost like in a, in a you know, just non-alert state. Uh, which I'm sure like goes away, but is that a thing? Like what? So now I can go back to her and say, no, this is why we, you know, Greg Bailey, the expert in the country, is that a thing? Like if you're not used to ever being in ketosis and you start, you want to initiate, you listen to this, you look it up and you're like, whoa, this thing's a healthy thing. Are you going to have some adjustment window thing where you have to, um, you know, your mentation is different? So Did I'm you know not the expert. I'm Brianna Stubbs, our, uh, who works at the Buck Institute, and is a PhD in this area. She's the expert. But um, what I would say is most people who take the metabolic switch product will they'll go one of three ways. 33% um, will say they're much more mentally acutely aware. They're just really focused. One third will say they have greater energy, which is why I think the study at Ohio State is going to be intriguing. And one third don't feel anything. And I must admit on different days, because I take it every morning, I get different aspects. Sometimes I'm quite alert. Sometimes I feel like I have a blast of energy. I use it uh, occasionally, the drink, if I'm going out at night and I'm sort of tired, but I have to go to some function. I'll take it because it gives me a boost. Of, I notice a boost in energy, but I can fall asleep on it as opposed to caffeine or Red Bull, whatever you're taking to, to perk up. So to go back to your wife's situation, depending on how she got to you know the, the low carb situation, what she's eating, what she's not. One is, we know there was a study in Nature in 2018, we know the diet is, is ethnocentric. So um, Japanese people can eat white rice with impunity. If you and I did, we might be diabetics. You know, Eskimos eat lard. I'm not sure I'd recommend that to the average, you know, Mediterranean person or Indian. 
So I think that depending on what she's accustomed to, how she processes food, her microbiome, which is a whole different aspect. Um, yeah, your microbiome takes some while to do, to adapt. I haven't had red meat in 15, 20 years. Um, if I have it, I'm sure it would upset my stomach. So I do think there's a period of adapt, adaptation. And if you take metabolic switch, it's a dose of ketones your stomach is not used to. So you have, you know, you have to gradually build up to a full dose. Otherwise you will get gastric distress. So I love that you said that about red meat. And this was a conceptual thing I meant to say earlier. And that's as a, you know, as a physician, I don't like just being that physician says you need to like diet and exercise, you know, you need to have weight loss. I think, I think it's just an unfair thing to say in a blanket way to patients, but there's no doubt about it. And I preface that I say, look, I wish I'm not, I'm not trying to be that doctor, but I'm telling you having weight loss will have a direct like reduction in your chance of cancer risk. There's just no, it's just, there's just no question. And it's not like a huge, like, it's like you have to be 50 pounds over and that's when your risk goes up. I mean, it's just, it's just the difference in the BMI scale of like, you know, under 25, which is considered not, you know, overweight. And then over 25, you start seeing significant upticks with just the BMI over 25. And this is coming from somebody, uh, you know, I used to lift a lot and stuff, but I hang out or did at least around 26, you know, 26 and a half. And when I saw those stats, that was a big uh, impetus on just showing like, how could with nothing else being or everything else being equal, how can that difference of 1.5, like between me being at 24 and 25.5 or 26, multiple times increase my chance of several cancers, right? In addition to all kinds of other stuff with, with cardiovascular health and all these things. But the reason is, and I went down a mini rabbit hole, it's not a full rabbit hole, it's called a mouse hole. And I was like, you know, it's inflammation is we know causes cancer. So like something like H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori in your stomach, it's, a, it's an infection, right? And we know that causes like a, a lymphoma that's in, in the stomach, it's a gastric lymphoma. And it's so effective that this is one of the few cancers you can treat with antibiotics. Because if you, if you treat the H. pylori, literally half the time the lymphoma just goes away. So you're actually doing anti-cancer therapy with just reducing the inflammation of the environment. Why? This is a beautiful tie-in to everything we talked about, actually, because we talked about the stress and how that lowers your immune system. Well, inflammation does that as well. When you have, in some ways, it increases some parts of your immune system, but also that calamity, those cytokines and those interleukins and all that stuff, it creates an environment that's unhealthy. And so that regulation of your normal cells doing their job, policing, it's calamitous. And then that's a great environment for cancers to generate because this is where the cell says "Ooh, like you know the policemen are distracted somewhere else and this sounds like a cheesy one-dimensional thing but it's true then they get less regulated and they grow and so we know that happens with like you know gastric uh, 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 infections and then red meat you know there's a lot of literature that of course it's for coronary stuff is is a big thing but but meats cause inflammation you know there's they're, they're just they're saturated with some of the fats and you could probably talk about it way more than i can but but there's also like these like i don't want to say toxins but components of the meat that cause inflammation that's why bladder cancer like in the south we have a lot of smoked meats like that's a huge thing tailgate i mean you just see a pig just on a thing with an apple in its mouth it's like game of thrones but um but it's it's you know these cause bladder cancer why because the toxins and the and the smoke stuff you go down your urinary system and then you cause anything that just invites little mutations, toxins and stuff will cause cancer. So there's no doubt about that. And then we know when you have high levels of sugar and you know, glycosylation, you hear these terms that like sugary stuff, like when you're, when your arteries and veins, when you're getting this hemoglobin A1C, that's the actual red blood cell, but that creates an environment for 
cancer. That's, 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 it's in a very basic, you know, I would get slapped on the wrist by my professors, but in a very, very basic way, that's why. Fat cells are inflammatory. They just have that. They have that, you know, around them. They literally like, and they produce their own like hormones. That's why, that's why postmenopausal women say, well, why do I still need a hormone thing for my breast cancer if I'm not, I'm like, because your peripheral, even your fat cells and everything still cause a little bit. So they actually have some function, but we know it is hundred percent correlative and, and it becomes challenging, but, but that's why it's the inflammation stuff, uh, in part that come from, from fat, as well as from just increased sugar levels everywhere. It's just dysfunction. And I say all this and I just start thinking to myself, gosh, I really need to do better. Right. I, uh, I've never challenged myself with a keto diet. Um, I've, I have all the wrong cards. I'm, I'm Southern. So we love like gumbo and etouffee and jambalaya and all that stuff. And then I'm Indian. So we love rice and roti and all these things. So I don't know. You've given me a lot of, ha ha food for thought, uh, I, know, but I hope it's part three. There's two things that play an enormous role in aging and to the point where they've literally nicknamed it inflammaging, you know, and what uh -oh. happens with that. And then the other one is fibrosis. And if you can arrest those two processes, it's a remarkable thing. Smoking, as you know, as a physician, increases your chance between 70 and between age 20 and age 70 of chronic diseases by 5x. Aging increases your uh, your chance of a chronic disease by 1000x. It is that profound how it affects cancer, how it affects dementia, respiratory disease, whatever, whatever you pick. So whatever we can do to slow, halt or reverse aging will play an enormous role. To what you said, you know, to circle it back to cancer, because if cancer is, is, you know, the same aspect of aging is playing out its role in the top 10 leading causes of death, which are all age related. So how do we do that? The diet that you've talked about, you know, so far for most people of Mediterranean descent, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, the classic, fr you know, fruits, vegetables, and that's, I think it's probably the same for the Indian community as well, you know, although they probably need to do a proper study because we do know there's ethnic differences. So, you know, diet, as we've talked about, you know, obviously sleep, as we've talked about because of its role, if you're shift work or something like that, literally knocking down your immune system, predisposing you to the fact that your immune system can no longer kill a cancer if it starts to, to you know, get past the immune system and uh, seed itself. And then, um, you know, exercise, you know, as, as Walter Board said, you know, zero, you know, half a percent you know, decay of yourself mentally and physically if you're fit and 2% otherwise. The microbiome is a big deal for both cancer and for a aging in general. So the correlation between cancer and aging, I think, is profound. So to circle back to the sugar, that we for at no point in time do we know that it causes cancer. Um, we do know that it increases inflammation. You've talked about the fructose uh, situation. Um, but you're better served the more you're off carbs, or at least you're doing complex carbs and not the fructose, the fruity drink, or, you know, the desserts and cookies where they, you know, use the fructose. That's an interesting way you put it because, you know, I talked about, you know, obesity or overweightness and, you know, the number of X increased risk of stuff. The way you put it was very sobering. Age is a thousand times increaser, right? And that's why like you know, a lot of times I have patients, they're so healthy and they say, doc, like, what did I, like, how did I get this? I'm so healthy. I've always been healthy. What happened? And I'm like, you just, you just got older. I'm like, there's no, there's nothing stronger, nothing stronger, or well, maybe smoking, but really 
that increase your chance of cancer more than just getting older. That's why it's like still considered a disease of the elderly. And I mean that in no disrespect to children and adolescents listening to this have cancer, but statistically it's so, I mean, it's, it's logarithmically more the older you get. Why? Because these errors happen and, and all of this stuff. And that's what I have to tell people. I'm like, it's just almost bad luck. You know, a lot of these cancers that we don't have, like, um, not, not bad, not just bad luck, it's aging. And then on top of that, there was no other you know impetus so you're looking at things to see well if we know that's the biggest risk factor for all these comorbidity comorbidities neurologic stuff cardiovascular stuff and then of course cancer can we slow that down and that's huge that's a very that's a very interesting i mean it, it, you're saying what everyone knows but you're saying it in a way that's all of a sudden like why aren't we paying more attention to this yeah so we're working we have a longevity association we've helped establish because we need to convince the regulatory bodies the most important thing we can do to advance anti-aging and its benefits to slow cancer, because I would say that age is a higher risk factor than even smoking uh, for cancer. Yeah, yeah it for sure is. Is, yeah. you know, we need a biometric panel. I need to be able to test you today and say, Sanjay, your chronological age, how long you've been on the planet is X, but <clears throat> your biological age is five years younger or five years older. And if it's five years older, here are the things you need to do to arrest that problem. And that will be transformative because now I can run a one-year clinical trial instead of a 75-year clinical trial to show that my product has got validity as far as anti-aging. There's a thing called DNA methylation. As we age, our DNA methylates. And depending on how fast or slow you're aging, you can literally measure that. Um, there's a professor, Professor Horvath, UCLA, who's got a good sense of humor, so he calls, calls his test the Grim Reaper. And basically, he will tell you the discrepancy between your chronological age and your biological age, plus or minus three years. So he may what? say- You can purchase this? He, yes, you can, tell, you can purchase this. Although I would recommend going through his lab at UCLA. So I would say the discrepancy between somebody being 35 and it may say 32 could have an error of three years. So you actually still may be 32, but you're starting to get- I asked Steve, I did Steve Horvath, that's his name, I said, I'm less concerned about doing that number. What if I started you on metabolic switch or I started you on this drug and I measure you at the beginning with your DNA methylation and I measure you afterwards? He said, oh, it's very, very good at that. He said, there we can say, Sanjay, during the year while you've been on this product, you only aged eight months. Well, where's that product? I'm gonna take it all day. So they ran a clinical study with Greg Fahey at UCLA and they gave people five products, two two pharmaceutical agents, one I wouldn't recommend, but the other one is metformin, and three supplements. And it was a very small study, and they, they took the DNA methylation at the beginning of the year and the end of the year. At the end of the year, they'd lost, they hadn't slow or halted aging, they reversed it by two years. So this is coming so much faster than you think, and its role is going to be so profound in your thing. So the takeaway, you know, is, Aging causes cancer, sugar uh, feeds the cancer, but most importantly is where science is going to take us, which is why it, we need to put more and more money towards the slowing or halting of aging. And the Buck Institute, places like that are doing extraordinary work, as is David Sinclair at Harvard. You know, there's some great groups that are trying to address this issue. You're blowing my mind. 
Well, Dr. Bailey, thank you so much. I, I, I know you're a very busy man, but I really need to follow up in an email and get some links from you and some information because I'm so interested. My dad is super interested. Um, you know, it's, 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 it, everyone gets inter more interested in this when they get older, right? That's the problem. I know like, that works. Start, right, exactly. And I think, um, I think we would be all doing ourselves a favor if we, you know, at my age and our 30s and everything, start thinking about these things now. It's the same thing for anything else in health, right? Be healthy now, it pays off later. And you know, you hear that and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's true because then otherwise you're in this situation and you know, you're wondering like, should I have done something, you know, years prior to decrease my chance of stroke or all this stuff. So anyway, this was amazing. You're amazing. Do you have a book or anything or podcast? No, I don't. I just... do, you, do you want one more fact before we drop off? Please, I want so all the we facts. went up to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. I think it's cost about 2 billion pounds to build it state-of-the-art in Glasgow University. We were talking to the epidemiologist there. And he said, do you want to guess what the average lifespan is in Glasgow? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, generally it's around 78 years for men, 81 years for women. And he said, West Glasgow, which is the wealthier part of Glasgow, you're right. Do you want to guess what it is for East Glasgow, which is not, you know, which is the poor area, but has access to all the same healthcare system. So this is all lifestyle. Do you want to guess what it is, Sanjay? The average lifespan of somebody living on the east side of Glasgow versus what I just told you for the west. 68 and 72? 54, a 50% discrepancy because of lifestyle. So to all of you who are listening to Sanjay, and you should continue to listen, these are the sort of things you can do to literally modify how you, how you live and whether you live longer healthy. Because what we want at my company is I need to prevent you from ever getting inflammation, prevent you from ever getting fibrosis. The key is prevention. We need to start in your 20s and 30s so that you have a robust, healthy lifespan. The discrepancy between how long you live and how long you live healthy in the developed world is 10 years. Wouldn't it be amazing, oh, wow. and it's called health span versus lifespan. So wouldn't it be amazing if your health span coincided with your lifespan. You were ha healthy right up to the week, the day, the hour before you passed away. We just, if we do that, we gave you back eight years of healthy living. I mean, that's oh, extraordinary. That's a novel, novel concept, yeah. Because my mom says like, she'll be like, I don't want to get older and die. Like I want to die you know, sooner. I'm like, why are you saying that? And she's, I think that's what she's exactly saying. I don't want my health span to fall short of my lifespan because then you have this end, you know, where, where you're just not optimized. If I may, we have like, if, if you have a minute, I meant to ask you this before. Can you expand a little bit on the fibrosis part? Sure. Um, Just in general, like what? So why 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 is fibrosis bad? How is it happening? And and how does that relate? Because it's a concept in cancer. I think it's probably a little different. But I'm very curious to get your insight on that. So um, fibrosis of the liver is 15% of the developed world, one in six. Fibrosis of the kidney is 13% of the developed world. Fibrosis then is is equated to 28% of pathology. You know, if you add the two together, although there's some correlation between who's getting the can the liver and the and the kidney, and then we have lung fibrosis. So this process of inflammation, fibrosis, and this cascade is devastating to even the developed world. So this isn't limited, you know, to the poorer countries. So what can we do to arrest fibrosis early? And we've just looked at a pathway that seems to play a, an interesting role. It's, a, it's a, called the serpine one. And it's a, gen, genetic, a gene and a genetic pathway called pi one. And it's one of the, you know, there's a number of these interesting pathways that we're gonna have to modulate. 
you know, unfortunately, you know, which you may also be a takeaway from this is the whole aging thing is very complex. And, but there's some simple things we can do to slow inflammation and slow fibrosis and generally, you know, control your weight and things like that. There's five things they say you can do to live 50% longer. Low coponine level, which means you don't smoke. A good HbA1c, which means your blood sugar is under control. You know, that your HDL, cholesterol, your that profile is under control. That your BMI that Sanjay referenced earlier is under control and low stress. If you have all five of those, you live 50% longer than somebody who's offside on all five. Interesting. And that fits, you know, I think the happiness, low stress, you know, somebody asked me, very astute patient, not medical, how come all the people like in Sonoma and Napa Valley and stuff, you go out there, they're literally 85 years old, they've been drinking alcohol, which is supposedly bad. And I'm like, it's, there's so many dials when it has to do with health span and lifespan. And I'm like, that happiness, that environment out there of socializing, drinking slowly, red wine, I'm like, whatever the things about red wine is, like that happiness over years, surely being outdoors, all these things that increase your feel good stuff, which are just natural evolutionary things we neglect. You know, it, it, it's, it's a delicate balance, but that stress thing I think has a huge role that, you know, we underappreciate. Number one way to live longer is to be happy. Number two is to have money. <laughs> Number one way to live through a hundred is to be respected, loved by your community and integrated and be integrated into a family. The centen really? super centenarians, that's what we see with them. One of the blue, the only blue zone in the United States is Santa Clara, California. Uh, it's seven day Adventist. They are outdoors. They're uh, very community oriented and vegetarian. That's true. I've read about them. I hadn't, I was in an anti-aging class. That's true. It's crazy. And I will say the most common answer I get with any patient that's in their nineties. And I ask them, what is the secret? Is it oils? Is it, is it, you know, vitamin supplements, secret water by far nine out of 10 times. The answer is like, like happiness, like be happy. And whatever that answer was, my spouse, my kids, my whatever, they're like, but the happiness keeps you alive.